I'm your host, Tierney Steele, and I have a new guest with me here today. Oh. Yeah, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, it's Chrysanthi. Why don't you tell people what podcast you work on, and it will become immediately clear why I was like, well, you have to come on my music podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I host Star Wars Music Minute, which goes through the music of Star Wars five cinematic minutes at a time. I don't do one minute at a time, but five minutes at a time. Seems more fitting for music. Yeah, that would be a very awkward. I, I liked this where it was like, okay, the song is the segment. Timestamps mean nothing here. We're we're breaking free of timestamps for this season of podcasting. We do one song at a time, and today we're going to talk about the song Ain't That a Shame. But I guess I will throw it out to you. Would you prefer to talk about the song or what's going on in the movie first? Why don't we recap what's going on in the movie and then talk about how the song fits into that? I love it. So it's a very awkward It is scene. really awkward. <laughs> seen this movie so many times, but I've never had to parse what's going on between these guys. And it's very, very unclear to me what is joking and what is not. <laughs> oh, what do you mean? Because so much of this back and forth of, you all know Toby Warris? Yeah, we killed him. Like, it is played for laughs. It is 100% played for laughs, except... They are taking it very seriously within the movie. Richard Dreyfuss, Kurt, Kurt, Richard Dreyfuss's character is like, I'm going to die. <laughs> He's not laughing. And yet the way that Joe, uh, played by Bo Hopkins, like looks up at the sky as he says, we killed him last night, is like, well, I feel like George Lucas wants us to laugh at this. <laughs> like everything that he is setting up feels like this is a... Uh, this is a hilarious scene. And yet it's like, this isn't, this is very serious. He's being, he's being kidnapped in this scene. Wait, I missed the, t- I missed the reading that this was hilarious. <laughs> okay, good. Welcome to In Universe and how we're going to talk about that. This gang, the Pharaohs, are inspired by the car club guys that little teen George Lucas would see hanging out at uh, the burger place, the round table, and they all had matching jackets. He thought that was very cool. So when he wrote his movie about teens in this time period, in this place, of course, there were going to be gangs. And there's this weird, like, gangs, the word to George Lucas in 1972 did not have the same connotations that it does to me having grown up in the 90s and 2000s. Meaning George Lucas meant it in almost a little bit of a more innocent way? Is that yeah, yeah. Like, gangs are just a bunch of guys that hang out together and have matching jackets and go... But but there is a menace to this. To get really heavy, in this segment, they're saying, you know, the the repeating, the ha-ha-ha, t- tied him to the back of the car and dragged him. And I'm like, okay... Well, now that we've lived through some horrific retellings of actual hate crimes, that is not funny. But I feel like the way that, um, is that Ants? The the other gang member is like nodding along and Richard Dreyfuss is like almost over-exaggeratingly, like he's practically pulling on his collar and swallowing (laughs) the whole scene. And I feel like in 72, 73, 
obviously there had been horrific But in the suburban crimes, landscape, like, you mean? Yeah, like audiences going to see this movie in the in the theaters weren't bringing that like baggage to it, I guess. Well, I feel like this movie is the primary audience is probably people who relate to the white suburban experience in the first place. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's George Lucas made a movie for that era. I mean, he said so many times that he wanted to capture before Kennedy was killed, the innocence of America in the late 50s, early 60s. Right. The Yeah. For white people. Yeah. Sure. And he's, yeah, yeah. actually, that was one thing that really struck me. I, I grew up on the East Coast in New England and I don't know where you're from originally, but it occurred to me that this is a very California thing that these, these are very white characters and yet they're dropping the last name Juarez. And I was like, Oh, that would not have come up in in my hometown in the 60s, I don't think. Meaning there wouldn't even be a, like, Juarez? I don't even think there would have been a Juarez in 1962. I could be wrong. I see what you're saying. Okay. You're saying that even the tiny bit of, I can't even say it, diversity in this film, even the tiny bit was, like, even more than you would have expected from your hometown, is what you're saying. Kind of, Oh, my God, that is saying something. (laughs) Oh, well... (laughs) There is this teeny, tiny, itsy bitsy, teeny, tiny, itsy bitsy, tiny bit of diversity that to me just kind of like makes it more obvious (laughs) that this is a very white movie made by a white man for a white audience. I mean, it's his experience. Exactly. Yeah. He made his experience growing up and that is what his experience was. So and I don't experience know. is that yeah. someone named Toby Juarez would have been a passing character that has been killed. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it is what yeah. it is. And I think it's important, at least especially, um, I think it is worth situating where this is coming from, who it's for, and it just being really upfront about all of that. Because I think it's fine to consider it from that point of view and to know that I mean this is George Lucas writing his experience it's not like he's trying to exclude people but on the other hand when people wax poetic about this movie as specifically a simpler time in America that to me makes me just very rageful because I'm like that might be true for maybe your family or maybe like if you were in this era but I feel like some people extra like they try to make it seem like well if you don't appreciate American graffiti you just don't appreciate that this was like a simpler time like things aren't like they used to be in in American graffiti and it's it's true in in many ways but um keeping it specific like I don't know I I feel like George Lucas it seemed like he wasn't really trying to make something for everyone he was trying to be hyper specific and so it's okay to to frame it that way yeah it really helps that this movie is so clearly George Lucas's semi-autobiographical experience in Modesto, California, and not, this is the American experience of 1962. Yeah, the white American experience. <laughs> okay, it's hard. For, it's like watching this, I don't, I was trying to think to myself, like, where would I have fit in in this era, in this town, in this thing? And I'm like, I can't even really say because it just, just people like me weren't there. I can speculate, but I can't divorce the speculation from real history, which is like my family wasn't in this country until the 80s. And it would have been like a whole different thing to be there, not just like, oh, let's just plop me with my personality (laughs) into there. It would have been like this whole other 
it just I can't even imagine it because I just don't. It's so many steps. To yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. So I have to just suspend like so I have to take myself out of it. And I, I basically have to take take the character's word or take the characters by their word that what they care about is the basis of the film, because I don't really have that much of a like fact check. I don't have that much of a like credibility meter for it. So um, so it's funny when you said this part is maybe supposed to be funny. I was I, I completely missed that. I think I am coming around to your view because I was just like, is it though? (laughs) There are a million question marks going on in my notes this week. Uh, I did want to give a shout out though, because regardless of what's going on, the three actors that play the pharaohs are so varied and I just found it really interesting. And I kind of want like the story of them on the set. Like, did they come up with a backstory for their little pharaohs group and like how they all started hanging out together and stuff, because that I would like to hear. Um, This is the leader, Joe, played by Bo Hopkins, um, whose career started in 1966 and is still going on IMDb. (laughs) So we're not going to talk about all his credits because we'd be here forever. Ants, who is the one standing next to, uh, behind Richard Dreyfuss, uh, played by Bo Gentry, He was a San Francisco guy. He's got three acting credits on IMDb. So I'm guessing that he was one of those people. George Lucas basically said he like raided an improv school. Was like, who wants to come be in a movie? (laughs) So Wait, two of them are named Bo? Oh, yes. Uh, So Joe is Bo Hopkins, B-O. And Ant is Bo Gentry, (laughs) B-E-A-U. That is so funny. I didn't even think of that until you said it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I need the backstory. Like, I need to know about these three guys hanging out during filming. And then Carlos, the one who's complaining about Shotgun, is played by Manuel Padilla Jr., who started acting at age eight and is 5'3". That's why he looks younger than the others. He is back in More American Graffiti, apparently, which I have yet to see. So I will will report back (laughs) after seeing that movie. Perhaps Carlos becomes like a main character or something. I don't know, but he will he will return <laughs> in the sequel. <laughs> and then the fourth character in this group is the car. I really liked the description from the script. An incredible maroon 51 Merc. So it's a 1951 Mercury Sport Coupe that's been lowered and chopped so that the windows are like ominous slits and the whole machine has a submarine quality. Wow. What I always loved is that you then get into this complete, I mean, ominous, menacing, all this stuff. And then it has the fluffy white pack, (laughs) just the outside of the car and then the fluffy decor inside just always makes me like, it seems so like it doesn't go together. And yet this is, this is the ride. Fluffy. That is, okay. When I was watching it, I was like, the inside of this car makes me very anxious. I thought it was just like really trashed inside, like really dirty, like things were just like hanging off the sides, but I guess it's the fluffiness. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I thought it was just like they didn't care to upkeep the inside. And so it was just falling apart. I don't know, because I feel like they would take care of their car. Yeah, I think your take makes sense, makes more sense. And it could be that they like shredded the tops of the seats to get that to come out. But it it looks like a white boa <laughs> laid across the back <laughs> oh, yeah. window. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what it looked like. Totally. So even if it started from a very menacing place, it did not end there. <laughs> it 
did not end up <laughs> that way. And especially the shot. So Kurt is loaded into the back seat. They are taking him away. Who knows what will happen to our hero? And as they pull away, he sees the blonde and the white T bird. Ah, uh, yes. Ain't that the a vision. shame? <laughs> they were so close to each other, but he's trapped in this car. So you see there's a bunch of shots of the T-Bird through the window. And like I said, this this fluff is just sticking up. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> it's It would be hard to be in that car without like trying to look at it and trying to be like, what? What is this? Am I what in? happened? I also have incredibly bad allergies. So I feel like this is not the car for me. <laughs> oh, same. Whatever that's made out of, I'm going to sneeze near it. Same. And and are they really like dust bustering the inside? I mean, I doubt it. Uh, Although maybe, who knows? I just see these are the things we never see when people are upkeeping their cars. We don't see the part where they're dust bustering the feather boa. Also, um, an anti-PSA for shag rugs, which are disgusting, just FYI. <laughs> like, I don't care how well you try and vacuum them. It's always an archaeological dig. Oh, God. The last note I had to take on this was to ask if you have strong feelings about calling shotgun rolls because my sister, I have one sibling. And so calling shotgun was very codified in our house. Like you have to be with inside of the car and his whole like you can't call it for the whole night. Like every time you get out of the car, it starts over. <laughs> that really brought me back to my childhood and teenagehood real quick of trying to get that coveted front seat. Oh, interesting. I didn't have like a big social life where I was calling shotgun a lot. I mean, it did come up a little bit, but the thing is I get really motion sick. So a lot of the times mm. I would just get shotgun because it'd be like, do you want me to throw up or am I just going to sit in the front? For the good of this trip, <laughs> let's let's let Chrysanthi sit in front. <laughs> Put it this way, I just got shotgun a lot. And when I didn't, it was, I never, I'm not a complainer and I would just always be quiet, but I'd like silently be dying there in the back and then it would like completely ruin my day. But I'm very sensitive and also the bass, the music is always like loud in the back and the bass bumps. It just makes me like want to vomit when I'm in the back. So I even sit in the front when, well, pre-pandemic when I'm getting Ubers and taxis and stuff. Especially in this car where the windows are so small. Yeah, seeing the horizon is key. Yeah. When he describes this car as a submarine, I'm like, so my nightmare. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting, Kurt's storyline really takes an interesting turn because you think the story is that he's gonna spend the whole night chasing the blonde and the t-bird and he kind of does but he gets sidetracked quite a bit well because the blonde angel doesn't really exist it would be hard like in the back of his mind he is chasing her but it's not like he has a legitimate trail necessarily mm -hmm. so he's got to be doing other stuff while doing that i don't know yeah. it's sort of like if I'm trying to finish listening to a podcast or an audiobook, you know, I can get sidetracked to doing errands or doing other stuff at the same time. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, my head is in the space of like finishing this thing that I'm that I started. Oh, now I'm picturing Kurt listening to podcasts and I just got real happy because I <laughs> bet he would be super into that. <laughs> I bet Wolfman would have a podcast. Oh, Wolfman would have a killer podcast. I mean, he would be forced to do a podcast rather than his radio show. Well, that part's sad. Yeah, the death of radio. <laughs> and I shouldn't say that because I'm sure uh, I'm very biased because now that I live in the city and don't drive, it, I never listen to the radio. And so to oh, me, me, it's either. like... It's like radio has ceased to exist, but I know it's still out there and I just Same. don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's like watching the musical guests on SNL. Like, 
Yay! Musicians still exist. I have no idea who any of these people are. I feel that one as a musician. I'm like, where are all my jobs? Well, yeah. And this past year, not a good example. Oh, Does not terrible. Count. <laughs> I mean, hence me starting a Star Wars music podcast. Hey. Very small silver lining. More time for different <laughs> types of projects. <laughs> I'm so, it's such a, it's one of those ideas that as soon as you announced it, I was like, oh, of course. The reaction of all of my friends and just the reaction of everyone so far that knows me personally has been like, what took you so long? So overall, what did you think of American Graffiti? Because like we said, it is a very specific time and place that it's telling this story. Yes. So overall... I don't relate to it and I don't personally feel connected to it on a story level. But interestingly, I understand it on um, from perhaps the lens that George Lucas partially was going for, which was the documentary nature of it. So the way I take in this movie is from a more analytical place of like, oh, what is happening here? Like what convention is happening here that we haven't really seen before? What is surprising me about like the techniques that are being used, like with the music mixing and some of the other stuff as well. So um, I'm a very like analytical person in general, which really annoys a lot of people close to me. Sometimes when I just like watch or read something and immediately I'm like, I have to parse out like my thoughts first sometimes and, and things, the feeling of things grows on me slowly. And I have seen this movie before, but um, I mean, I've seen it a couple times, but what strikes me is obviously the whole the whole use of music, that's like, that's a whole conversation. Of course, that was very groundbreaking and it still is not really done this way. It's, this is a very specific music project. It would be super expensive to do this today too. I appreciate it from the level of being a teenager on the cusp of going to college and just feeling torn between sticking with what you know and moving on. I do understand that and I do like the snapshot in timeness of it. And I don't mean time like 1962. I mean like how it takes place over the course of one day and night. Mm. I do like that aspect of it because even though the plot is not really, it's arguably not like the most flashy plot, it's arguably not the most memorable plot. It's like a lot of subplots. It kind of reminds me of like, I don't know, when you're a teenager and you feel like the, the what's happening in your life is a is a very important plot but then I guess if an adult were looking at a bunch of teenagers they'd be like oh the teenagers are just doing teenager stuff and they wouldn't really honor each of the plots as a plot does that make any sense yeah I'm combining it in my mind with a uh, friend I have who actually does not like this movie like actively dislikes American Graffiti because she because of what you're talking about where she didn't see it as a teenager she saw it after I think like towards the end of college or like mid-20s or whatever where she was you know not a grand per you know not looking down on high but was just kind of like oh it's just one of those one crazy night stories and nothing really happens and it's super boring and I can't keep track oh no that's how I feel about it too but with the also with also the knowledge of like I see what he's I see what he's doing and how I'm like for the reasons we discussed at the beginning I'm not the person who would really get it but I see what he's doing and he's really like giving these kids their own like giving these mundane stories a movie and it and to me it signals like I'm on the outside of this but to the people inside of this it is really meaningful but the way that there's like four storylines and it, it just seems like it's self-aware in that none of the stories are that important but at the same time they are important 
I don't know. It just something about the technique of how it's assembled seemed to fit what was happening, if that makes sense. And just the stories. And and I don't know. I just like when I like when small things are given plots. Now, as to how those plots played out and like, I mean, I was like, what is happening and why? And like, <laughs> what? Just like, wow, the whole time. But it's clear that the plots weren't themselves that important. It was more so the overarching plot of we don't really know what we're doing because we're kind of scared of the future and not sure if we want to like live up to what people like. I don't know. Maybe 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 I'll just like hang back, go to junior college or maybe I'll try something. And it's just the uncertainty of the future. Which I think is the one kind of universal feeling where even if you and obviously not completely universal, but even if you have never faced like, do I go to college across the country or stay in my hometown? Or, you know, do I drag race this person or not? The the fear of the unknown, the passage into adulthood from being a kid is something that everyone faces at some point. And especially if you are a teenager like these characters are, it is the whole world. Now, what's interesting, though, is as you say that, I realize that I relate to the fear of the unknown, the uncertainty more now than I think I would have as a teenager, because I really do feel the like, I guess, not peace, but the rhythm that you kind of fall into. And then when taking on a new project, I always get this like, oh, gosh, am I ready for my life to change? Uh, Maybe I just pretend I never had that idea or, you know, when it comes to moving or something like I feel like it'd be much harder to move now than it would have been to go to college. But that also has to do with the fact that I think I just it didn't seem like much of a choice for me to Mm. go to college and not in that I was forced more that in it was so clearly what I thought or what I knew that I wanted to do and also my friends were going off to college too it just wasn't like do I stay home it would have been like well of course I'm not staying home of course this next thing is happening and it felt it felt more like at the at that time 17 18 the forward progress the big steps were more acceptable or more like I don't know like I'm still young just laid out yeah because I've I've actually talked about that with friends in that the difference between people who were raised like they do not remember a time where it was not assumed that they would go to college unless something major happened like you know all of a sudden it turns out you're an amazing chef and you should go to cooking school instead. But like still something. The The default was, oh, of course you go to college versus people where that was not the default. That was something that had to be earned or achieved or however you want to put it, where it was like, oh no, this is a huge deal. And, and then we all ended up at University of Connecticut together and it's like, oh, we had totally different expectations when we <laughs> drove onto campus for the first time. Yeah, I think it's also that like, It seemed like they felt that they had things at home to cherish. And I didn't really feel that way. You know, like it seemed it was like the obvious better option to go to college, Mm -hmm. to move, to get move out. I can't remember if it was Doris or Rachel, but I know the first week one of them said it's kind of weird that Kurt is the one debating whether or not to go to college or stay home when he has the least tying him to this town. Like he doesn't have a girlfriend. He has an ex, but like doesn't you know has his car that is that completely stands out and isn't like any of the other cars in the movie like he is just such an outsider already and yet he's the one who's like oh i don't know maybe i'll stay (laughs) but that says more to his own character that says more to um it says more of his personality than it does his like status because all these things are in our heads Uh, you know Mm. they're all in our heads at some (laughs) 
on some level, we like it's easier for me to think about it now than as I was a teenager, like I said, but if I think about myself now, I mean, I know a lot, a lot of people who have families and I don't like, I don't have a family. I'm not married or anything like that. You know, I rent an apartment. Ostensibly, I'm not very tied down, but I know a lot of people that have a house, have kids or are married or have things like a job that is very location-based, but they still are maybe more adventurous. And it has nothing to do with like that they're just not tied down. It's that it all comes down to their personality and how much they embrace change and how much they seek newness versus someone like me who it would take a lot for me to want to move or make some huge change on a whim without like a lot of evidence that the next thing would be worth it and better. And like it would take it would take a lot to get through my filter of like judgment. I'm trying to think if I've ever made a major life decision that didn't involve a spreadsheet and I'm not coming up with any. So <laughs> yeah, I I definitely, definitely feel that. He's afraid of change. That's what it comes down to. He's more reserved and less apt, like less able to take risks. Which I do think is great that spoilers for the ending. We spoil the ending here all the time. It would be totally different if he didn't go. But the fact that he does go, that he does get on the plane, that he takes the leap. Lucas has said that Kurt kind of represents him going off to film school, kind of starting a whole different life. Yeah, Kurt, like I relate to Kurt more, more than anyone for sure. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about the movie itself? Or should we talk about Ain't That a Shame from 1955? Let's get into the song and then I'm sure other movie thoughts will just come out. I love it. So this is by Fats Domino, like I said at the top. It's number 438 on Rolling Stone's 50 Greatest Songs of All Time list. Wait, it's a, it's a list of 50 songs and this is in the 400s? No, 500 Greatest Songs. Oh, oh, Did I say okay. 50? <laughs> I'm like, I um... might have said the wrong thing. I'm sorry. Yeah, Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. What absolutely blew my mind is I was looking at Fats Domino's career and he had top 10 hits he had 11 of them okay very impressive but i knew he was great between 1955 and 1960 that doesn't even seem like it should be possible and yet i found lists of them and the years and it's like oh god were these all in the top 10 like it was just this huge explosion of success for him were they all collaborations with um what was his main collaborator's name again oh I did not write it down, but Bartholomew. I can find it really quickly. Oh, yeah. Dave Bartholomew. Yeah. I don't know if they all were, but I'm sure a huge chunk. Ain't That a Shame is credited to both of them. Yes. It's a great song and it fits. Like I said, having this be the song that plays as he looks out the back window, sees the blonde and the white T-bird and like he sits and faces forward and just kind of like gives himself a moment to sigh and be like, well, this is my evening now. <laughs> yeah. This song is, well, not the whole thing plays in the movie, just a portion of it plays. But because it's so repetitive, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you get the song, you get the just, you can pick any 30 seconds from the song and get the song. (laughs) Yeah. Not breaking any barriers with his experimental lyrics, which is fine. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of the music in the, I mean, this was his pop pop crossover, but I guess it stems more from R&B we're in this vein with simpler lyrics and the structure, you know, less of, if you think of a song today, it's like, I don't know, if you played someone a 30, 30 seconds of a song or even 10 seconds, you would be able to tell like, this is the intro. Oh, this is the bridge. 
Mm. Oh, this is the last chorus. Oh, this is just the first chorus because it's not as big yet. There are so many distinct parts. You know, I don't think one's better than the other, but um, blues, like blues originally was not meant to be like this, this complicated thing. It was originally, you know, a soulful thing that just arose from like working and, you know, like after, especially after, like after the end of slavery, when things were still really awful. I don't know if I'm going too much into, into blues, but, um, is, is what I'm saying. I feel like with, uh, with Fats Domino's background, the fact that we're talking about the blues makes perfect sense though, because this is the New Orleans success story guy right here. Right. And, and it's important to consider that a lot of white people ripped off of him and got more credit than him or would do covers of his songs, changing the lyrics around to be more respectable. And he was even made fun of sometimes for his simple lyrics. Ain't that a shame was doing fine. And then it wasn't until it was covered by Pat Boone that it actually got this big bump in popularity and became the hit, the the, the go-to song that would eventually end up in a movie, American Graffiti, about this time period and this music. And it it was oh, well, Pat Boone did a cover, so it's okay to listen to this because now a white person's singing it. And it's, I mean, that happens all the time in this time period with music, but it's so rarely... Still happens. I, 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 it's still... I, it's usually an unspoken thing. It's an unspoken, like, oh, this happens. And this is just straight up like, oh, Pat Boone covered it so white kids could buy the record. And it got really huge and popular. Well, plus airplay... Well, whether an artist was black or white would have also factored into where it was played. Mm-hmm. So it just would not have gotten the same airtime, airplay. Yeah. Racial segregation was at a peak here. From what I've heard, like this song, this was his pop crossover song. So yeah, it was mainly because white audiences were starting to want to go to his shows. And country, you know, stems a lot from blues. So this was sort of like mixing in a little bit of a country sensibility, just sort of making it. I don't know, just making it more mainstream. But at this time, I mean, we have to remember that white people and black people weren't allowed to dance together. So at his shows, like if white people were dancing, they would like he 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 stopped a show once, at least once, because uh, the black people were not allowed to be dancing while the white people were. And he was like, no. He seems wonderful. From what I've read, I, his actual website, is it really just Fats Domino? Oh, FatsDominoOfficial.com is... I, I just, as someone who has a website that is like square pa- spaced and not very well put together, I'm in awe. It's fabulous. And it's it has a really interesting story, but I also really liked the little things like, I don't think it was on his website. I think it was somewhere else I was reading. They were saying like, oh, what's your favorite cover of Ain't That a Shame? You know, of oh, all the it? ones that were done. He said Cheap Trick <laughs> was oh. his favorite cover of Ain't That a Shame. And I was like, that is not a band I would have associated with this song in this era, but I'm going to look it up. And just all the discussion of, you know, what he was trying to do to build up community, to help people just seems like a good guy depending on your how do I want to put this you're gonna find a lot of pictures of him like hugging George HW or George W Bush but that's all right it he was famous famously infamously I don't even know how we talk about this because it's recent history but um his house was basically destroyed by Katrina and the floods and he had gold records all these awards everything just 
And he's so associated with Louisiana that I feel like even if that hadn't happened, he would have become kind of a figure in the, but, but especially that he was in the same situation as so many people. And then it's like, oh, Fats Domino, one of the most famous musicians of the 20th century. (laughs) We're going to get some resources here for you. Yeah. What a devastating event. His history with the area and it's, I mean, I said, oh, a very famous musician. In these write-ups, these like retrospectives, people are saying like second only to Elvis for like influence. And I, well, no, I'm not going to try and argue that Elvis wasn't influential because Elvis definitely was. I am biased because I tend to like covers or originals of Elvis songs to the Elvis version. (laughs) I kind of run into the same thing with Bob Dylan. Where it's like, oh, I love this music, but I actually kind of prefer it when someone else sings it. (laughs) Sorry, Hmm. Bob. Well, in the music industry, songs and recordings of songs are considered separate pieces of property. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Like the song itself versus that recording of the song. If if you've ever tried to find music for your podcast intro outro, you will have run into this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. For licensing and stuff. Yeah, it's like, oh, this song's in the, like, this song, you can use it. And I'm like, yeah, but you can't just grab that recording off YouTube. No. As someone who has used many things that perhaps legally I should not have on my podcast, I'm going to shut up now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a very fascinating and can be very sad time in music history of song rights versus the recordings versus the and i'm one of those people who am fascinated by all the paola uncovered scandals so what do you mean now i can't remember what song it was but there was one where it's like oh yeah this got really popular after it was on american bandstand and it's like oh no they literally gave him money to play it on his show oh that's super common in the music industry pay to play it's like paola spotify does it like every it's everywhere and it's Honestly, it's the it's I I think about it a lot. Obviously, since I'm a musician, I have many thoughts on that. I I'm almost positive Dreamgirls has like in a montage, it's showing them like paying people off to play. You know, like that that was something that was considered so so bad. Like, oh, you can't do that. That's not ethical. Like, you shouldn't. And now that's just the business model again. <laughs> yeah, like, well, there what still happened? are people saying it's not ethical. The thing is, it's always been done, and it's. And it's always been unethical in a sense. So same, same. You know, it happens with playing at clubs and stuff too. Like there are some very famous clubs in Hollywood that I just refuse to play at because you have to pay to play basically. It's really scammy. And I mean, depending, some people can swing it and think it's fine and can meet the demands that are made. But basically you have to pay a big sum under the guise of like, well, if you can sell all of these tickets and then you have to like basically be your own raffle salesperson to sell your own tickets. So it's like you can book this club to play if you can either just pay the sum or sell that many tickets. Sure. The whole music industry is not at all. It's like pretty much not at all the way that it is presented to the public of like, oh, we plucked this person out of obscurity and oh, we're making an opportunity for someone. No, 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 no. Rare. What strikes me is how much history just repeats itself in different ways uh, with different costumes on. So I don't know, maybe I'm jaded or maybe I just 
have too annoyingly rational of a view point of this, but I'm like, it just doesn't phase me because it still happens. It's just different names and different companies maybe. And, but there's always going to be, there's always going to be companies and entities trying to make money. And there's always going to be people who are left out of the business model who are going to either fight back or start something alternative. And, and then that alternative thing will often develop the same types of problems (laughs) down the line. But what a glorious little moment in time before that (laughs) happens. (laughs) Yeah, let's grab onto that small sliver of hope and and let you plug your various musical endeavors. I want to go back to, I know that, God, we've been going for a long time, but (laughs) just because this is about the music and (laughs) want to make sure that we talk a little bit more about the music. The thing about this film with the music and what struck me in this scene as well is because of the sound mixing and the way that the music is used in the film, you know where it's coming from at all times. It's diegetic, basically. It's it's in-universe music. The characters in the film are hearing the music. So it's not like a soundtrack. And I don't just mean in the fact that I don't, just, I don't just mean that there's no original score. I mean, like, even in Pulp Fiction, where there is also a lot of sourced music, a lot of the times it is not something that everyone is hearing. It's like, it is still used sort of like a s- score. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's meant for the audience to, like, really get into the vibe. But in this film, it's like, the irony is that there's so many songs in it throughout, but actually watching it, I feel like there's almost no music in it. Hmm. Because there's no extra world music. All the music is within the confines... It's from the character's point of view. So like in this scene, when this Fats Domino song is playing, you hear sometimes that the song is muffled and kind of echoey. And then you hear that it's like louder when they get out of the car. And when they're in the car, it's like, I don't know, it, it kind of sounds, it just sounds different because it's coming from mm-hmm. a different, it's coming from different places. And you hear how that changes in the mixing. You know, it's not just like crystal clear song. It's like, you know, you're hearing yeah. it through speakers or, you know, you're hearing it through the radio. You know where the sound is coming from, which is unique for that to be happening the whole movie. It lends to the documentary feel of it and the like, to me, it's an ambient movie. (laughs) Sorry if that is not how other people see it, but it's an ambient movie for me. Like I could take a look at it, walk away, take a look at it. And it's sort of like, there's just, they're still doing their thing. They're living their life. And I'm kind of in a, I'm being a voyeur to that. It's not even the music for me. The music is something they're listening to and I'm watching them listen to the music. So it's a very, it's a very specific and unique song technique that I just, yeah, that we should name. <laughs> yeah, and you're right, because this segment shows that off so well Yeah, with the different volumes and, like you said, muffling and directions, depending on what's going on. Because, yeah, they, they move a lot. You know, some scenes, they're all in the car, so it's not static, but it's the same thing. They're, they're still in the car driving along. It doesn't have right. that When you don't variation. hear the scenery change, it's hard to appreciate the dis- uh, how intentional that is. Yeah. But it's clearly so intentional, and almost it's like the music doesn't hit you over the head in that regard because it's not like oh we're gonna put this here for the audience to really feel this thing because it is very much like what is what everyone universally is hearing especially considering that wolfman is like a central character and everyone at least is unified by the fact that they listen to wolfman these songs that come up at just the right time they almost seem like accidents like they come off as Mm -hmm. like no big deal like 
Ain't That a Shame is playing in the background, you could super read into it. Or, I don't know, we're just kind of watching them driving cars. Maybe it's like a coincidence. And you can, it leaves the door open. It makes the music seem more realistic and more like open to drawing my own conclusions as to what it may mean. Because it doesn't seem so heavy handed. Like, we're going to play Ain't That a Shame right when he closes the door. Yeah. The other movie I did at Movies by Minute recently was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I was deep in the Spielberg thoughts. And I love Spielberg as a filmmaker, but he does not do subtle when it comes to emotional manipulation in his movies. He's a master at manipulating me emotionally and he will make me feel things. And I I know I'm being manipulated by it. I know he's putting these musical cues and this shot exactly here to make me cry. But I feel like George yeah. Lucas is that way too with Star wars yeah it depends on how do how do i want to put this nicely some are more successful at it than others yeah or you know it or for people's tastes yes yes i mean i think in general that that comes part and parcel with using a score scoring your movie is those the music is there to assist in the emotional processing of what's happening on screen so that's why this movie almost feels devoid of that because there is no score no it's there isn't it yeah so it's just not overt i think it's the norm for a score to be emotionally manipulative and this is more like it kind of is but less so yeah because you just can't you can't get as like on the note you know yeah because in the real world it's not like always the exact song plays but in the real world here, it's the same. Not always the exact song plays, right song plays at the right time. But maybe it does always play at the right time because we are primed. You know, each of us are naturally primed to make meaning of what is happening in our environment. So, yeah, who knows? A song could come on that really seems like, wow, what a coincidence that this song came on this time. Might read into it for myself and someone else might hear the song at the same time, assuming we're listening to the radio and take something completely different or nothing. So that's what I like about it. It kind of shows how like, even though they're listening to the same thing and it's not hyper-personalized, it's not like he took out his phone and decided to just play this music that fits his feelings right now. Like he didn't choose. Yeah. It's sort of like this one element from the universe aligned with another and you can choose to make meaning of it or not and i think that's just how life is and i think that's how a lot of art is and it's a lot of what drives our opinions of art it's like well here's what's in front of you and here's my experiences and now let's see how those mesh and one person can be like this is a genius work of art and because of this and you know it happens to line up with their worldview and lens and for some other person it might totally hit on different buttons I want to give you a chance to talk about your art, obviously. I want to really quickly say some of the best feelings are when a piece of art hits you that you did not expect it to. Yeah. Like when we used to be able to go to museums and all of a sudden you'd be like, what? like something would just hit you and be like, wow. And like you have to stop and process it. And it's one of those things that is not in your normal wheelhouse. Just happen to be walking by or walking along outside and all of a sudden you hear something and it's like, wait, I must I must follow that noise and figure out what's going on. Um, that happens with music sometimes too, where you're like, oh, this is the perfect song and now I have to figure out who it's by so that I can yeah. look it up. And arguably a lot of that has to do with how you emotionally are primed in that moment to accept that or not. So before I completely distract us and keep you here for like another hour, I'm so sorry. Would you like to tell people about your art that you do and where they could find that if they want to check it out? Sure. I have music on Spotify and all the all the normal platforms. Um, I have a YouTube channel as well. And my name is Chrysanthi Tan. So everything's just at Chrysanthi Tan. Also, if you are interested in Star Wars and musical and sonic deep dives, you can check out Star Wars Music Minute. 
That's my new baby. That will be deep dives into the music of Star Wars. Like I said, sort of like this, five five minutes at a time. So we can really see how things are lining up with what's on screen and do a little bit of music analysis. That's awesome. I mean, John Williams scores and Fats Domino are very different musically, but I feel like if you're enjoying this, you're going to enjoy that as well. <laughs> Analyzing music use in Lucas movies, uh, even though they are very different genres. Thanks for having me. He's really fast, isn't he?